All right, I want to say good morning to you and ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. Um, and as we get into this, what we're going to see today, uh, we're going to title this A Foolish King, because Saul, surprise, surprise, does something else that would be considered quite foolish. You know, one of the most fruitless things that we can do is place our trust in people. Uh, that might be an individual. Uh, that might be an institution. Um, right now, I'm kind of trusting the folks that make Benadryl, and I don't know if they're going to do a real good job or not. So if I go to sneezing, just know it felt better on the outside than it did on the inside. Um, but the, uh, the, the Scripture, the Bible, uh, and, and obviously own, our own personal experience tells us that people are always going to let us down. Institutions are always going to let us down. There's never anything you can look to and say, you know what, that's a rock. That's a rock that will never be shaken. That is someone that we can trust in. You know, we're all looking for something that we can believe in. And definitely, you, 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 like, to, you like to see what you believe in. That's, that's, kind of, that's kind of part of being a human and that weakness is, is we want to see what we're believing. We want to see what we are trusting. But we can't because ultimately, the object of our trust is always going to fail and that's always going to be damaging for us. It's going to be difficult for us. So today, the passage that we're going to be looking at, uh, it's actually not in chronological order from the last one, so it's not the next thing that happens. So just as a reminder, in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, what we saw is it's very early in Saul's reign, maybe one or two years in, and um, the Philistines have kind of crowded in on the Israelite territory, like big time crowded in. And so there are some fights to kind of basically push the Philistines out, and then the Philistines come flooding back in. And so you almost are left in a situation where Israel is in this, this hopeless, surrounded state. Well, uh, that's kind of the story of Saul's reign. Pretty much all of it. He's surrounded. Uh, he's got multiple enemies. The Philistines are the ones we talk about the most, but he has multiple uh, enemies during this time. Uh, but this passage is not to show us kind of the, the, the political or the, the strategic setup of, of the enemies in Israel. This passage is to demonstrate to us yet again why God rejected Saul. And so we're going to get a glimpse um, of, of Saul's unique blend of cowardice uh, and foolishness um, in his reign. This is just how he reigned. Sometimes he was a coward, sometimes he was foolish, uh, sometimes he simply didn't know what the word of God said or was not in tune at all with what God wanted him to be and do. Um, but the sermon in the sentence is this, when all other hope is lost and the world's ways have failed us entirely, we will see how God fights for us. Time and time again, if you read scripture, what you find is that there are times that God will not act until it is beyond doubt that only God could bring victory. We look at that time and time again in the Judges. We see it in Genesis. We definitely see it uh, in the life of Saul. We see it in the life of David. We see it throughout. God allows things to run its course. And so the institutions of man completely fail. The king fails. The military fails. The priesthood fails. Everything fails. And when there's no other hope, that's when we see that we should have been trusting God all along. And that's definitely what we're going to see in this passage. So it is a lengthy passage, but it does move. There's a lot going on here. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1 through uh, 52. 
One day, Jonathan the son of Saul said that the young uh, said to the young man who carried his armor, "Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side." But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, uh, in the uh, in the promagan- promaganate cave uh, at Migron. The people who were with him were about six hundred men, including Agi, the son of Itub. Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest uh, of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes uh, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side uh, and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bazez and the name of the other was Seneth. The one crag rose to the north, or on the north, in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, that we are, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to the armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer, um, killed them after him. And, the, and that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in the acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, or a panic in the camp, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude were dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Agi, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was taking or talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to his priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim 
heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. The men of Israel had been or and the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff, uh, that which was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoils of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Alon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoils and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then, Saul, then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously, and roll a great stone to me here. And Saul, dispersed, uh, and Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired to God, of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all of you leaders of the peoples, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, or who saved Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. So, for as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. So what he's saying there is, even if it's Jonathan my son that sinned, he will surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all of Israel, you shall be on the side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If the guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if, it is, or if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thumanin. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then, Jonathan, uh, then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff 
uh, that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobad, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. He did, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishiv, and Malachi Shua. He did good with Jonathan, the rest of them were kind of rough. And the names of his two daughters were these, the names of his firstborn, Merib, and the name of his younger, Michiel. And the name uh, of Saul's wife was Anoma, the, the daughter of Amaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Tish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father, father of Abner, the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Okay, so we're going to break this down into the three parts. Uh, we're going to look at first the brave son. So we're going to be looking at Jonathan a little bit here, but I do want to remind you, the focus is always on God and what God is doing. And so let's look at what Jonathan did and see what God did through that. So chapter 13, the end of it, it's meant to help us see how hopeless the situation is for Israel. They, they are surrounded by their enemies, but not only that, their enemies have greater technology than them. Their enemies have iron, their enemies have chariots, their enemies have armor, and Israel has to go to the Philistines to sharpen their farm equipment. They, they're not even allowed to have the ability to sharpen their own equipment at the end of chapter 13. So that shows you just how significantly uh, more equipped that the Philistines were. Uh, what we see today is that the Lord uh, rescued Israel because of the bold faith of one man, not because of military technology, certainly not because of numbers, but because of Jonathan's bold faith. So as we read this passage, it's clear that Saul and Jonathan are totally different people. Saul, he's, and specifically we're looking at their relationship with God during wartime. So Saul is very fearful. He's also very ignorant of God's ways. We, we see that pretty clearly as he makes his oath and does other things. But uh, Jonathan boldly trusted in God to give him victory. And so it's very, very different. So we can see um, that the, the, the events in chapter 13, which is very early in Saul's reign, they're, they don't, they're not immediately followed by verse chapter 14 because that's some of the explanation. Saul had a whole royal court. Um, he had a, a personal bodyguard or, you know, king's men, about 600. Um, he had a, a, a priest at this point, you know, a, a royal priest at this point, And um, he was holding court. Um, the fact that he's meeting, now my Bible translated pomegranate, 
promagant, I can't say that word anyway, that fruit, um, under that, in that cave, well, typically, that was where business was conducted and Israel was out in the open, and, and there was a reason for that. Now, there were palaces later, and the king sat in his court, but the reason that business was conducted out in the open was for the transparency that it provides. And so that was kind of a typical thing. So we see that this Philistine problem was very persistent, um, but it does not seem that Saul was ready to move or act out in this situation. So when Saul was afraid to face the Philistines, it's Jonathan who bravely took the lead in the fight. And so that's the first thing that we see there. So Jonathan talks to his armor bearer. And this would have been a close relationship, uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer, but the armor bearer would have been younger than Jonathan. We don't know how deep into Saul's reign this is, uh, but Jonathan's still a pretty young man, so the armor bearer, and you might think like squire, if, if you're into like medieval history, you would definitely think about the same. So, so the armor bearer would not have been old enough to really be a warrior in his own right. He would have been younger, he certainly would have been training, I mean that would have been part of the whole process, but he was not old enough to be considered a warrior in his own right yet. So you've got Jonathan and a young man who decide they're going to the Philistines. And I, I want to try to put you in this so that you can really see what's going on. First of all, Jonathan is tired of waiting on his father to do something about the Philistines. And so he decides that he's going to go, but he doesn't tell his father. And so when he talks to his armor bearer about this, his armor bearer says, hey, you do what's in your heart because I am with you. And, and, and the words that he uses there, because I am with you heart and soul, could be translated, I am with you like your own heart. In other words, this armor bearer was promising to stick as close to Jonathan as Jonathan's own heart would stick to him. This, he is ride or die. He is with him till the end. And so they go for a walk. This is not a long walk. This is a short walk, okay? So, so they go from where Israel was kind of being established as a nation. This wasn't an encampment anymore. This is where they were being established. They go for this walk. And the Bible describes these two kind of rocky hills. And, and so there was a way probably for Jonathan to sneak, but that's not his plan. His military plan is absurd. So the first thing he's going to do, if you have a smaller force than the enemy, you would probably want the element of surprise. So the first thing he's going to do is give away that. He's going to go and he's going to be seen by the Philistines. And the second thing he's going to do is his battle plan is, if they want me to come to them, I'll fight them. If they come to me, I won't fight them. Now that's very much backwards because when you look at any battle, whoever has the high ground typically is going to win. Whoever has to climb up that high ground is pretty much going to lose. And so Jonathan comes, him and his armor bearer, they come out into plain view of the Philistine garrisons and the garrisons, the soldiers call down and say, hey, come up here, we'll show you a thing. Um, this is a really nice way of saying that the Philistines started to insult them and invite them to come up so they could die. That's essentially what's going on here. And if you know anything about ancient warfare, you know that the, the dialogue was a big part of it. They were trying to intimidate uh, probably, probably in their minds. So they, they know that they didn't just crawl out of holes. Probably in their minds they're thinking, okay, so he's either wandered somewhere he doesn't mean to be um, or he's just trying to scoot by and he doesn't want to be challenged. They probably had no idea that Jonathan really came there looking for a fight that day. But Jonathan says, if God leads us, if, if God leads us to this fight, then God will grant the victory. 
And so that's exactly what uh, Jonathan is expecting, that God, he's going to seek the will of God, and then God is going to give, or he's going to find victory in God's response. And so that's what Jonathan is expecting, to find victory in God's response. And so when he goes, the Philistines do just that. Hey, come up here, we'll show you a thing. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer have to climb this, and it says that they're on their hands and their feet. Meaning that this was pretty much a, 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 it may not have been sheer, but it was very steep climb. It was not something that would have been easy to do. And so as he climbs up that, and you're thinking, okay, so you're about to go, and again, this is different warfare than what we're used to. Nowadays, we see warfare, we see people hiding and shooting. This was a very physical thing. And so it was hand-to-hand, melee-style combat. So Jonathan climbs up, and, and of course his armor bearer climbs up, and they get into a fight. Now, it's two against at least 20. Um, now, you can imagine, like if you really want to put yourself there, you can imagine maybe a, a few of them saying, okay, so, so we're going to make this fair. So I can imagine at least at first, maybe two against two. I can imagine sort of like a, we're just better than you, we're going to beat you. But I bet after Jonathan and his armor bearer took down two or three of them, the rest of them were like, nope, we're not going to let this happen. And so I would imagine at some point, Jonathan and his armor bearer were outnumbered six to one easily. Okay, so, so they began to do this fight, and, and they began to be engaged in melee, whatever you want to call it. When the dust settles, they've killed 20 people. It says in the space of about half an acre. So if you can imagine half an acre, so in that space, so it's not like they came up to somebody, they fought them and they killed them. They rested, they came up to somebody else, they fought them and they killed them, and then they rested. No, this was, this was in one big area. They're fighting and they're killing and the blood is being spilt. Everything is going on in one place. And news got out of this. And so what happens is the main Philistine encampment, so this is a garrison, this is an outpost. They were watching this pass, the very pass that, that Jonathan and his armor bearer were going through, they were watching it. And so this garrison, the news of this gets back to the main Philistine encampment. It's only about a half a mile away to the main Philistine encampment. And so instead of them saying, oh, well, we're an army and, and two guys just embarrassed us. Let's go fight them. No, you got to understand the Philistines were very superstitious. They had many different gods. And in their, in their eyes, this was a horrible omen. This was horrible for one, you know, really two guys to go in and, and one man and one squire one young man to come in and fight you're looking at something that would have been a really bad omen for them and so it says that they began to tremble and then there was a perfectly timed earthquake right then it quaked and they were like oh no we're out there's no way that we can fight with all of this going on we got the earthquake we got our guys fighting and so they began to panic um so they began to run away now Anytime you have a battle and one side is running away and the other side is pursuing, it doesn't matter the numbers anymore. That's, the, that's a, a battle won because they're running away. So once the battle was won, that's when Saul found his courage and joined the fight. At first, there's all this craziness going on. And he says, hey, bring the ark. Let's figure out what's going on here. But when they see that the, the Philistines are just, they're, they're in turmoil. They're trying to get away. There's fighting going on who's missing who's missing so they count up it's Jonathan and his armor bearer and they're like let's go let's fight and so that would have been Saul and his 600 men plus Jonathan and his armor bearer which although they're only two they apparently count for like 20 and so they go to the fight 
But let me tell you some of the things that creates more chaos. And, and this is, if you've ever watched any kind of action movie on TV and you've seen soldiers fight soldiers, you're like, how do they even know who to fight? Well, that's exactly what happens here. Because among the Philistines were Hebrews who had went with the Philistines. And so they would have had Philistine armor, Philistine weapons. They would have looked and, and acted like, and would have been comrades with the Philistines until this moment. And all of a sudden, the tide changes, and so now you have these people attacking the Philistines. And so within the encampment, there's already enemies. There's already trouble, and so they're fighting amongst themselves. Saul gets there, and, and, and that's what he sees, is, is that the Philistines are fighting and killing themselves. And so now, who do you kill? Who do you fight? Well... About that time, it says also the Israelites that were hiding in the holes and in the caves and in the other places, they join into the fight. And you have mass chaos, but you have an obvious Israelite victory. And so Saul, this is where Saul begins to really make his mistakes. Um, so one thing that we have to see here with, with this vision is that ultimately this started when two guys decided to be proactive, to take some initiative and go after what they believed was going to be God's salvation in this situation. So I think it's important um, for us to remember that there is no situation that is helpless when the Lord is on our side. No situation is helpless when the Lord is on our side. Because here's the reality. There are times that God will not strike God will not act until the situation is beyond any, whole human uh, any possibility of human contribution. So we think about Gideon with his 300. We think about a story that we'll get to in just a little bit. We think about David uh, fighting against Goliath. We, we think about all these other situations that the Bible gives us that shows us only God could have done this thing. This is what we have here. We, we have a first order miracle. Only God can do this, and then God did it. And so that's what we're looking at there. And what I have for you this morning is to remind you that you may be in a hopeless situation. Have you ever been in a financial situation? You had no idea how you were going to pay out or no idea how you were going to succeed? Well, let me tell you that when we, when we depend on our wages, when we depend on what we have, whether we want to admit it or not, we're depending on an institution, you're, you're depending on your job, wherever your, wherever your income comes from. And I can tell you from our experience, that's never where the answer comes from. The money is there, but it's not there because the, the, the institutions have came through for us. It's there because God has provided. It's there because God has answered those prayers. It's there because God doesn't let us face it on our own. He is there. You ever been in a relationship situation that seemed impossible? Well, God is there for those things. Whatever we might face that seems like we're surrounded on all sides and everything is hopeless, God is there. But in this particular case, I'm not going to say always, but in this particular case, God did not act until there was a faith-filled initiative from Jonathan to step forward and boldly act where his father wouldn't. So I'm not saying every time, but in this case, God was waiting for somebody to take some initiative. What is he waiting for in our situation? We have to seek his face so that we can know that. So the story takes a pretty interesting turn in verse 24 where Saul makes the foolish vow. Okay, so he places an oath 
on his, on his people. And it's easy to understand how Saul could be full of emotions right now because this was big news for him. He's surrounded by his enemies. You have to understand that, that not only is Saul king of Israel, but he is a, well, now an elder in the tribe of Benjamin because he is the king, and the Philistines are camped in Benjamin land. And so you have to understand, this is a big deal for him, that now they're beginning to run away. This was huge, and so he was emotional. The problem is, the thing that he chooses to do was not God's will. It was not something that God had commanded. If you look through Scripture, you're never going to find God tell people, okay, you're about, to go fa- you're about to go fight, so you need to fast. You don't actually see that. There are some other military leaders. David was very notable for making sure that his men were consecrated, so they went through the steps that the Bible talked about being consecrated for holiness before they went to battle, so they would do that, but that didn't involve fasting. And so the only reason that you could justify saying, hey, nobody eat today, is if God directly revealed that to Saul, and we can see that God wasn't talking to Saul. And so he did this on his own. So Saul's vow is foolish because it was not directed by God, and it could really only hurt his men. Let's just think about practical terms. There ain't a horse for everybody. So everywhere they go, they're going to walk, they're going to run. They're going to be burdened down with whatever weapons they do have, whatever armor they do have. So really in terms of, of you know, energy expelled, this is the most significant that they will have. They're running, they're chasing the Philistines. And what you have to understand at this point from a, um, j- just from like a military in an ancient world, once soldiers start taking things from other soldiers, taking their meat, taking their armor, taking their sword, taking whatever they can take, when they start doing that, Yes, it expends a lot of energy, but that's how things change. That, that's how a weak army becomes a strong army. That's how an ill-equipped army becomes a well-equipped army. And so finishing out this route, chasing the Philistines down, taking their equipment from them, that's a big deal. And they needed their energy, but they're not going to get their energy because he's not going to let them eat. So the promised land really was a land flowing with milk and honey. They had ground bees. And these ground bees would build hives, nests, things like that. And in the chaos, because the Bible tells us that this, this route goes into the forest. So in the chaos in the forest, these hives, these, these nests begin to get disturbed. And so the men are coming by and they're seeing honey literally laying on the ground, but they're afraid to get it because Saul had made this vow and they had heard that. Well, you know, honey is a natural sugar. It's one of those things that can really perk you up. Jonathan sees it. He's not heard the, um, the, 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 the decree or the vow that Saul had made. And so he takes this, his staff and dips it in the honey and begins to eat a little bit of the honey. The Bible says that his eyes brightened up. This could simply be a blood sugar thing or it can just be, you know, you, you went from, from hangry to angry. He's ready to fight again and he's ready to go. But somebody saw him do it. Somebody saw him eat this honey. And one of his soldiers says, hey, you just broke this vow that your father had placed on us. You just did this thing that you weren't supposed to do. I really do like Jonathan's response. Now, it is sassy, but I like it. So what he says, my father has caused trouble for Israel. Now, if you're really a Bible nerd, you know that the last time that was said in the Bible was about Achan. Do you all remember Achan? Achan was the guy that took a little bit of stuff from Jericho. And so right after that, you know, Israel's on a roll. They're about to go. They go to this little city called Ai, much smaller than Jericho. They send like a thousand men. They're ready to fight, and they get destroyed. 
And they start asking, who caused trouble for Israel? And it turned out to be Achan. So those are the words that Jonathan uses about his own father. He says that he has caused trouble for the land. And he says, see how my eyes have become, that's verse 29, see how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. This, this was calories, this was sugar, it was something that was going to keep him going. And so he basically is saying that you're causing your own men to stumble and fall. But it gets worse than that. So Saul had said, don't eat until nighttime. Well, again, this is ancient times. You don't have electricity, you don't have a lot of good lighting. And so once the sun goes down, they are free of this oath and it's time for them that they can actually eat. And so whatever they have taken from the Philistines, they start slaughtering it and eating it right there. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't cook it at all, but what it means is that they didn't go through the proper butchering techniques, because I'll try to show you that in just a minute. So they didn't go through the proper butchering techniques, so the blood was still in the meat, and they're just, they're just eating it. And that is when people begin to point out to Saul, this is going on. Now, Saul may not have even known that that was a sin, but once, once it's explained to him, that's when he reacts. And so uh, his vow, Saul's vow was destructive because it led the people into actual sin. So he may not have been aware, but th this, was, this was bad. So what Saul does, he asks for a rock. He built an altar, and so essentially what he's doing is making a place where people can come, they can butcher their animals, um, and, and they can allow the blood to drain, and then they can, they can cook right there on the altar, there's going to be a fire, they can cook right there, and then they can eat. So that's what Saul is doing, is basically making a way for them to be able to eat according to the laws of God, not against the laws of God. So, so that's, that's kind of a, a, a nice thing, but when this is happening, what we see is that it was Saul's vow that pushed them to the point of, at least in their mind, they were starving. Um, men, you know this. The first time your stomach growls, you're going to die of starvation, right? Well, these men's stomach has been growling for a long time. They miss lunch. They miss supper. It's dark. We don't really care. Just put some heat on it, and then I will eat it. That was where they were at that point. And so they were starving in their minds to death, and so they just started. So Saul gives them a way to actually take care of this stuff so that they can eat. Um, but... Uh, he then decides, it's still nighttime, he says, let's keep pursuing the Philistines. Let's continue to take what they have and make it our own. But then one person says, well, let's, let's check with the Lord first. And so Saul does that. He draws near the altar. He begins to ask God, you know, give us a sign. Should we keep going? Or are you going to give them into our hands? And God doesn't speak that day. So God doesn't speak during the night. And so Saul knows that there is sin in the camp. That's basically what he says. There is, there is sin in the camp. And so he begins to cast lots. Now, you might imagine this as, as almost like a coin. And so he puts his son, him and Jonathan, because he's trying to narrow things down. So is it my sin? Is it Jonathan's sin? Him and Jonathan are on one side. All the people are on the other side. And, and it, it basically, it's laying one way or the other. So it's like flipping a coin. And so Saul and Jonathan lost the first coin toss. And so it's now just between them. So they toss the coin again, and Jonathan loses. And so Saul asked Jonathan what he did. Jonathan said, well, I guess you're going to have to kill me because I ate a little bit of honey. And Saul says, okay, I'll kill you. You are now under condemnation. This seems ridiculous. It really does. But this is who Saul was. It's foolish. It doesn't make any sense, but that's what he did. So he then issues the decree that Jonathan's the one that's brought sin into his camp. His own son has brought sin into the camp, and now he's going to have him killed. Now, 
I guess to his credit, Saul wasn't going to make any exceptions for anybody, and that might be a good thing, a good sign. But the whole premise is wrong because the vow was a foolish vow. And so the people of Israel don't let him do it. And so that gets to your last point in the foolish vow. Saul's vow was weak because his men would not let him follow through with its curse. So the reason that Jonathan was not killed that day is because the men said, Jonathan's the one that started this whole thing. Jonathan is the one that's been working with God. Jonathan is the way that we were saved. And so you're not killing Jonathan. It says that they ransomed him, meaning that they would have paid some price uh, to, to, to expunge him of his guilt, relieve him of being condemned. So they would have actually had to pay a price to keep Saul from uh, having Jonathan killed. But they said, you're not going to hurt a hair on his head at that point. So one thing this passage does really, really well is it shows us uh, that we can never trust mon uh, monarchies or any other form of government. You have to remember, God was the king of Israel. And when they asked for a king, they were trying to go around him. And so one thing that we can see is that a king may be able to lead his people in the battle, but the king can also greatly uh, diminish the effectiveness of those people. And that's exactly what Saul did. He did lead his people in the battle, but through his own choices and mistakes and misunderstandings, he caused them to be less effective than they otherwise would have been. You know, a king can build an altar. And if you look at other governments, you look at other monarchies, they always give you something to worship. In the ancient times, they always said that the king was a god. In the Middle Ages, they told you that the king was appointed by God. Even to this day, governments around the world are giving people things to believe in. But you have to understand that giving somebody something to believe in does not guarantee an interaction with God. So Saul could give them an altar, but he couldn't give them a guarantee that they would interact with God. We have to realize the government cannot do that. The king can swear oaths, but will always lack the power of bringing them to fulfillment. I'm not getting in politics because I think it's all across every possible realm of politics, but have you ever heard a politician make a promise? Yeah, we all have. You ever saw a politician keep a promise? No, not really. So we can't trust these institutions to do what only God can do. Let me tell you something that might matter to you. God is the only one that can ever keep a promise. We can't. It might work out that we do keep a promise, but we can't guarantee it. We just can't. Only God can guarantee things. If you're looking for a lock-tight contract, you can't make it with someone else. It's got to be with God. God's the only one that can do that. God's the only one that can ultimately keep a promise. This last point's very short. After we get done with this whole thing and they decide not to allow Jonathan to be killed, uh, you get a summary of Saul's reign. Now, this is very typical of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. When things are kind of wrapping up, you tend to get a little story about what the king did and all the things that he did in his reign. It's kind of odd 
But what we're going to see is that God's rejected Saul, and so immediately we're moving on pretty much in, in the narrative. We're moving on to the things that David did, and everything begins to shift perspective from this is how Saul saw it to now this is how David sees it. And so things are going to begin changing. Um, so we do get a summary of this, um, but what we can see is that throughout Saul's reign, he was surrounded by enemies who were much stronger than Israel. You name off those names, those were all names that were larger in, in terms of population, but also more powerful in terms of their military. But what we also see is that even though Saul was foolish and rejected by God, the Lord did not abandon the people during this time. So it says... At the very end there, it says, this is in verse 47, the very end, and against the Philistines, wherever he, that's all, wherever he turned, or wherever he turned, he routed them. That means he defeated them. So whoever it was, the Ammonites, uh, Edom, the Philistines, the Amechalites, whoever he was fighting, he routed them, he defeated them. This is not Saul. I think we've beyond proven that this isn't Saul. This is God doing these things. And so it wasn't Saul being a good military leader. It was God being a faithful God to a people even after they had rejected him and chosen an earthly king. So despite all the problems with Saul, God remained faithful to his people by providing them with the impossible victories over their enemies. We don't really have time for this, but I'm just going to say we as Americans couldn't handle having as many enemies as close to us as Israel has to, has to them. Even today, but especially back then, their enemies were in their land with them. Can you imagine the unrest we would have if we had invaders in our country? Much less, I mean, you know, for me, September the 11th just happened, and I know that it didn't, but the idea that America was struck by a foreign power, that's tough. That, that really shook a lot of people down to their core. But imagine Israel. They're constantly surrounded by enemies. Israel has enemies living in Israel right now, celebrating when they kill an Israelite. I mean, we have no co context for what Israel goes through. God has remained faithful to them even to this day, um, despite the impossible situation that they're in. So with Saul as their king, Israel should have been crushed uh, but God fought for them and gave them life and hope. If it's just about leaders, most every nation should be crushed. Uh, but the reality is God is, is with us. He is holding back the darkness, and He will continue to do that when we are with Him. So conclusion. So here's some of the things that we can learn. When we are with God, no situation is truly hopeless. It may seem that way, and even normal situations are going to seem hopeless before you see a resolution in a lot of cases, but God will act. When we are in this situation, we need to remember that nothing can stop God from saving. God is a redeemer. That has been how he has acted all the way around. So when God fights for his people, it's not because God loves war. It's because he loves saving his people. And so if you're here this morning, you're saying, well, I'm not a, a Christian. God wants to save you. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you're saying, I'm still in a hopeless situation. God wants to save you out of that hopeless situation. We have to recognize that God is a Savior. That's what He does. But then the other one, the part that's kind of difficult for us, faith-filled human initiatives can serve as an entry point for the Lord's saving action. It may be that God is waiting on you to get up and do something. It may be that he's waiting on you to take that first step. I don't know that Jonathan could have 
climbed the hill and fought the Philistines all by himself, but he could go take a walk by himself. And then God started working. And so what we have to realize is that sometimes it's going to be those first steps that we have to take, and then God himself will start working. So if we are willing to trust God, he will fight for us and win victories that are otherwise impossible. And so if you're here this morning, you're saying, you know what, I don't know that God. I do not know that kind of victory. Well, let me tell you about a different kind of king altogether. We're going to look at Saul, we're going to look at David, we're going to look at Solomon, and a whole bunch of other names that I don't promise I can pronounce, but I can pronounce Jesus, and I can tell you, he is the king. He is the king like no other. He is the king that is our savior. He is the king that fights for us. He is the king that wins these battles. He is the king that delivers your soul to God. Complete perfected, and holy. He can do that. No one else can. Now, the Israelites had some very hard times, times that we can't even imagine. You know, we are a people of depression. We are a people of mental illness. We are a people of, 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 of weakness in a lot of different ways. Well, the Israelites were surrounded by actual physical enemies that wanted to kill them and take their things. We're not surrounded by people like that. But we still need to be saved. And God can and will do that. So if that's what you need to do today, this may be the time to do that. If you are already saved, but you're going through a difficult time and you're thinking it's impossible, know that God is there. Reach out to Him. Maybe find that first step and God will act. There is nothing that will stop Him from saving. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this time to gather together. I thank You for the lessons that we learn in these passages Lord, as we look, it tells us of war, it tells us of people dying, it tells us of difficult and impossible times. We never rejoice in human suffering, but we should learn from it. And here we learn that you are our God, and in you there is victory. So Father, I pray that you help us to seek that victory, to follow after you, and when all else seems to be against us, we can still know that you will fight for us and you never lose a battle. Father, I pray that we look to not a king of this world, but the king of this world, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is not only the ruler, he's the maker. He is everything. He is sufficient. I pray that we trust in Him, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen.